If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you didn't bring your own Bibles, the passage is in the bulletin or on page 238 of the blue Bibles that are in front of you. We're going to spend this week and next in this chapter. Uh, And then what we're going to do is we're actually going to take 1 Samuel and we're going to put it in the fridge or we're going to put it in the freezer, if you will, and we're going to pull it back out in the middle of winter. Um, And that's, if you're not familiar with it, kind of the way that I structure uh, our preaching to go on a kind of semester uh, basis to balance us out a little bit. Uh, So we've got two more weeks, this and next week in 1 Samuel. And by the way, if you're looking at the end of this passage, I'll read into verse 13 uh, today, and we'll read more there about the Spirit of God rushing upon David. We've talked a little bit about that. We've talked about it in Judges, and we've already talked about it in uh, Samuel with respect to Saul. I'm going to come back to it next week because that section there at the end deals a lot with the Spirit, and frankly, uh, it needs its own sermon because there's a lot going on in uh, that passage. But just so you know how these are both going to kind of uh, lay out today and, and next week, that's the, that's the stopping point and the transition point. I suppose that if I were trying to look for a logical stopping point in uh, 1 Samuel, perhaps it would have been last week instead of this week. In other words, don't introduce David, uh, save the next start uh, for uh, the beginning with David. But frankly, after the uh, devastation, after the, uh, the, the pieces lying on the ground, perhaps quite literally, that we saw at the end of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, I thought it might be nice for us to take a little bit of a peek ahead uh, to, to see that while all of this ugliness was taking place in the life of Saul, Uh, and in the life last week of the Amalekites, that God was doing something else at the exact same time. God was preparing and providing a new hope. And so that's what we see in our passage today. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Kings fall but the word of our God endures forever. The first 13 verses then of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely... The Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that in the midst of this world, in the midst of whatever is going on in our lives, that you would grant us the eyes to behold and to see the Messiah, the anointed one, the king whom you have chosen, the one whom you have installed on Zion on your hill, even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who now sits with you on the throne of David in the heavenly Mount Zion. We pray that today we'd see him. Open up our eyes, Spirit of God, through this word. Amen. Lauren and I delight in and delight to show one another the first shoots of a plant as it pokes through the ground. We, we watch for it. We wait for it. We, we go to the spot where we know we've planted something and we look for it just to see if it's yet broken through the ground. Uh, last year, we planted lots of canna lilies around the border of our fence. And when the year had come to a close, we, we did due diligence that you do with canna lilies. We dug them up. We cleaned them up. We divided them up into buckets. We put them under the house to save them, to preserve them from, it's a little bit too cold up here uh, in Philly, for them to last through the winter. And this year we took them out and, and we planted them and we distributed them. And there are canna lilies out here and there are five or six of you who have canna lilies because they really multiply. Um, and so this year we have been waiting and watching to see whether these canna lilies into, what we, into which we put so much work will poke through the ground uh, or not, and indeed some of them are. But we look for them and we delight in them. In fact, uh, John Erickson and I now have a pattern whereby we talk about, we look for the first shoots, the first evidence of green to show us that our crepe myrtles made it through the winter. And then John will send me a picture and make me feel guilty because mine don't look as good or as far advanced as John's do with the buds coming out. How much more would that be the case? If it was a land of, of desolation, 
I've not seen this personally or in person, but all of us, I suspect, have seen on nature shows those pictures of a, a portion of the earth as it's been scorched by fire. You know, a wildfire has come through a particular area, per, perhaps through a forest, and the land is all blackened. And then you see the pictures in the middle of that of a shoot coming out of blackness all around it. And today, indeed, we see a shoot from the stem of Jesse, a shoot from the stem of Jesse. Now, that's a phrase that I'm lifting uh, out of context, but completely in context. On the other hand, that phrase is found in the Bible in Isaiah, describing someone who is to come, and it's written by Isaiah. It's prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years after the death of Jesse, and of course hundreds of years then after the death of David as well. But it hopes for and it longs for another shoot to come out from the stem of Jesse, from the desolation that surrounds Israel at that particular time. Of course, when we look at our passage today, when we come into Bethlehem and we see Jesse, we don't see Jesse in desolation and devastation. We, in fact, see Jesse, if you will, in full bloom. The sons of Jesse are many. There's a lot of them. And if we look at the stem of Jesse in this passage, we see a lot of things that look great, a lot of branches that look absolutely wonderful. They're strong and they're healthy and they're flowering branches as we look at Jesse's family. But there is a scion. There, there is a little bud that is tucked in the back of Jesse's stem. It's hidden from sight. It's hidden from view. Nobody can see that little shoot that's coming out of the back of that stem because the other blooms are so big and they're so full and they're so vigorous. They're so apparently healthy that one might overlook that scion. It is hidden from the sight of men, but it is precious in the sight of God. It is a scion, a branch that will grow to be precious to the world as well. And so we enter into Bethlehem. We enter into Bethlehem with Samuel looking for a son who is to be anointed the king. In other words, we go into Bethlehem with the prophet looking for the Messiah. Now, sometimes when we work through the biblical theology of the Old Testament and we're trying to see how these passages connect one with another and help us to show Christ, it takes a little bit of work for us to see how we view Christ in the midst of this passage, but all of us get it. All of us, right, you get it when you say we're going to Bethlehem to look for the anointed one who is the king of the Jews. We know how that connects. We know where that story goes. We know where that story ends. It certainly doesn't end here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We go into Jerusalem on this great search. We join with others. We come into, well, 
the kings, the wise men, came into Jerusalem, and then they were directed to Bethlehem. But we come into Bethlehem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And so with the prophet and with shepherds who were instructed to go into the city of David and with the magi who were instructed to go into the same place, we go to Bethlehem to see God's provision, God's vision, and God's decision. Vision, or provision, vision, and decision. We ended last week, we ended chapter 15 of last week, and we found ourselves empty, desolate, devoid of hope. The end of the chapter was characterized by three words, by rejection, by grief, and by regret. And there was separation between Samuel and Saul. It was an awful moment in the history of the people of God. It is a sad world. It is a world that is devastated by the flood of our own sin. And these times of devastation, these times when all around us looks to be hopeless, they are going to come. And in such a world, there is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says to us so clearly, there is a time to mourn. There is a time to be sad about the world in which we live. But God says, but God says to Samuel and to humanity as well that there is also a time to arise from mourning. Mourning is a part of life in this world. Mourning is a part of the devastation that takes place because of sin. But there's a time to arise from it and to look to the Lord. Samuel, the Lord says, the time for mourning has come to an end. How long are you going to grieve? It's time for the grieving to come to an end. I have made my decision. There's no going back on it. I'm not a man that I go back on what I have declared. I have rejected Saul from being king. But Samuel, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm not done with you. I'm not done with kingship. I'm not done with kings. Fill up your horn with oil and go. Go to Bethlehem where I am sending you. Fill up your horn with oil and go. Those are words that, of course, very specifically, are spoken to Samuel in this passage. And yet I think that they are words that perhaps can be heard by us as well. God has work for us to do. God has work for you to do, even if we think we're through. Even if we think things have come to an end, there's nothing left for me to do. Samuel, as a reminder, is an old man by the time we're at this stage of his life. And yet God has a mission still for him and for us. Fill up your horn and go. 
But let's be clear, the basis for our work, the basis for the work that Samuel will do in this passage is the work, in fact, that God is doing and the work that God has done in preparation for this moment. In verse 1 of chapter 15, we read the words, I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. God has done a work. God has done a work in providing for himself a king among the sons of Jesse when not a one of us was paying attention. Not a one of us was doing anything about trying to provide a king for Israel out of Bethlehem from the line of Jesse. But God was providing. Samuel is sent to Bethlehem not to create, but to discover God's provision for his people. And that's good news. And that's an old part of the story of the Bible. Whenever man attempts to provide for himself, whenever we take it upon ourselves, think for a moment just of the the obvious examples of Scripture. Whenever we try to provide for ourselves a covering, sew fig leaves together, Whenever we try to provide for ourselves a name, significance, unity, building a tower whose top will reach up into heaven, whenever we try to provide for ourselves for the covenant, for heirs of the covenant, think for a moment of the efforts with Hagar because Sarah seems too old to bear a child. Whenever we try to provide for ourselves, including a king, things go badly. And in contrast to the vanity of human efforts, the Lord in this passage announces his provision. Now, if you'd like, it would, it would be helpful even in our minds to think of this passage that is before us today in light of Genesis chapter 22 and the offering of Isaac. The statement that Abraham makes in that context is, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. And at the last moment, when it seems, as, this, as it seemed in chapter 15, when it seems like maybe God has forgotten, maybe God didn't remember, maybe God can't provide, well, in Genesis chapter 22, he provides. And we read in Genesis 22, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord there provides the sacrifice And now we find ourselves in Bethlehem. You remember what the name of Bethlehem means? How that's translated? What what Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. It's the place of God's provision as well. You come to Bethlehem, you are looking for bread. And the Lord has provided already in Bethlehem. Now, years before the events we're reading of today, generations before that, two widows walked back into Bethlehem. 
and they weren't expecting God's provision to be wonderful and abundant for them there. But as they go into Bethlehem, God provides for them. He provides for them shelter. He provides for them food. He provides for them a man whom he has already established there in Bethlehem who will become husband to one of them. He provides for them both. A child, Obed, who is, of course, the father of Jesse and our story. And now, once again in Bethlehem, we see God providing again, and it gives us some hope in the midst of the despair that we've got from the previous section. Now, as is often the case, God's provision is initially something which only God can see. Only God can perceive what is going on in this passage. And so, in addition to speaking of God's provision, we can also speak of God's vision how God sees in this passage. Think about this. When Naomi came back, when she returned to Bethlehem, she could not see what God was going to do at that moment. She tried to get Ruth not to come back with her because she couldn't see any future. She couldn't see a future for herself. She couldn't see a future for Ruth. And thus, when she comes back into Bethlehem, you recall the words, she says, listen, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter, because she couldn't see anything else. Life was bitter, life had been bitter to her, and that's all there was, that's all there was ever going to be as far as she was concerned. She couldn't see at that point God's provision. And when Samuel hears of this plan from God, all he can see when he considers this plan are the obstacles to it. Even the prophet's eyes in this passage grow somewhat dim. Now remember from earlier in the book, that was a metaphor to describe Eli, how Eli wasn't seeing as well. But in this passage, Samuel himself is going to need some help to see what is before him. All he can see initially is danger. Listen, if I go into another town and I anoint someone else to be king, guess what? That's not going to make Saul happy. Doesn't make kings feel very secure when the people who established them as kings in the first place are going around and anointing someone else as king. But God knows God sees and God directs Samuel onward. And as he arrives in Bethlehem, we have another one of these great prophetic encounters. It's kind of like the encounter that we saw uh, last week, although Saul tries to do that encounter. Remember when Samuel comes and Saul tries to say to him, hey, how you doing, Samuel? Blessed is the Lord. Samuel, I've obeyed everything that God has told me. Well, when Samuel shows up outside of Bethlehem, we see the real way that people respond when a prophet shows up outside your town, which is to say, yikes, what's he doing here? What did we do wrong? That's the question you ask when a prophet shows up. What did we do wrong and what judgment is about to be spoken against us because of whatever it is we've done? Do you come peaceably? 
That's the question you want to know when Samuel is standing outside of your town. One of those ones who later kings will refer to as a troubler. A troubler of Israel is here. There he is on the outskirts of Bethlehem. No one can see what God is doing. Samuel can't see what God is doing. Jesse can't see what God is doing. None of the elders of Bethlehem can see what God is doing. It reminds one of an Old Testament passage from Isaiah, which is quoted by Paul in Romans. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Nobody can see it. Nobody can even imagine what God has done in the midst of the time of carnage for the people. We're like Elisha's servant who was unable to perceive. All he could see were the obstacles. All he could see were the dangers. All he could see were the enemies until Elisha prays for him and says, Lord, open his eyes. Open his eyes and let him see the army of the host of heaven which is around us. Samuel's sight is still clouded when the sons are brought before him. He looks at the first one, this son Eliab. And like Saul, Eliab looks the part. He looks like what one thinks a king should look like. And it leads to this rebuke by God in verse 7 that is really, frankly, one of the key verses of all of the book of 1 Samuel. And the Lord said to him, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel, Samuel, my ways, they're not your ways. My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. My vision, the way I see things, that's not the way you see things. I, God, am looking at the heart because the heart is the heart of the matter. For all of the battles and all of the sacrifices and all of the accoutrements, all of the prophets and the priests and the kings that we find in the book of 1 Samuel The heart of this book, the heart of the Davidic covenant is God looking for a person after his own heart. And that's true throughout all the scriptures. It's true before we get to 1 Samuel. It's true after we work our way through. It's true when God looks at the offerings that you give. It's true when God considers the widow's might and the heart that is behind the offering. It's true when God looks at slaves who are trapped in servitude and he looks at their heart and not just their circumstances. And it's true 
when God looks at a woman who is married to an unbeliever, and it's a difficult situation, God says, I look on the heart. That's the way the vision of God works. Adorn the hidden person of your heart, because in God's sight, the hidden person of your heart, regardless of your stature or status, is what is precious. That's the precious thing. The world judges differently than that. The world evaluates significance differently than that. But for God, it's not your stature, not your station, but the hidden person of your heart. God sees the devastation of a fallen king, and God provides a man after his own heart in one of Jesse's sons. And God helps Samuel to see it as he, God, sees it. In effect, if you want to go back to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, stop, look away. Behold, look over there. There's, there's a ram in the thicket over there. Look at what I have provided. Behold, Samuel, there's a son that you haven't seen yet. There's one you can't see because he is out shepherding. Now, let me tell you something interesting. I've made the first two points of this sermon, God's provision and God's vision, in Hebrew. Those are the same word. Those are the same word. I've provided for myself a son of Jesse. That's the same word as vision. God's vision and God's provision are linked together. He sees what the need is, and according to how he sees, he acts, and he responds accordingly. Now, vision is a complicated thing, and it's complicated, I think, even within this passage itself. It's worth talking about just for a moment. On the one hand, when we talk about how do we see, we want to acknowledge the goodness of the gift of sight. God has created our eyes. God has created us with the ability to see. And according to Genesis chapter 2, God has also created beauty in this world. God has created, in Genesis 2 language, trees that are beautiful for the eyes. So we have the capacity to recognize beauty and to appreciate it because that is a gift that God has given to us. And the significance of that is played out in this passage that is before us as well, because when David finally is seen, when David finally appears on the scene, I think all of us are surprised. I know at least I'm surprised. I've talked to a few of you about it before getting to this moment in 1 Samuel. We're surprised, given what verse 7 said, to get in the introduction to David a physical description He's ruddy, he's kind of red, he has beautiful eyes, and he is, in fact, handsome. And so we get a description of this man that is, given the setting, I think, a little bit surprising to us. So that's one side of, of the eyes. They can perceive that which is beautiful. On the other hand, our eyes, like every part of us, they're fallen, and they're made subject to distortion, to blindness, and they become for us a gateway to sin. And thus, in 1 John, 
John can talk negatively, of course, about the desire of the eyes, the lusts of the eyes, about the evil and wicked ways in which we use our eyes. We can be sinfully governed by appearances. Now, I'm not going to try to break that down into the specifics of it right now, but that would be a good exercise for your devotion uh, to say, Lord, how am I governed by appearances? What kind of things capture my attention externally or drive me externally? In any case, we can be sinfully governed by appearances, and that is what God checks in Samuel. You need to adjust your vision. God doesn't want Samuel to close his eyes, but he wants Samuel to see as he sees. He wants Samuel to at least look on the heart first because that's how God sees. That's God's vision in this passage. And so we've got God's provision, God's vision, and finally in this passage, God's decision. Now, if Saul was the people's choice, and when I say Saul was the people's choice, I don't mean necessarily to say that it was the people who held an election and they voted on, they elected Saul to be king. We saw in the previous chapters how God was completely sovereign through all of this in appointing Saul. But what I mean by Saul being the people's choice is that it was the people who had demanded the king. It was the people who wanted a king, and they wanted a king to be like all of the other nations who were around them. And so God is sovereign in giving them exactly what they want. This is what you want, all right? If this is what you want, this is what you're going to get. Most likely to be an effective king was the superlative that would have belonged to him. Saul is the people's choice. David is God's choice. Based on God's knowledge, based on God's view of the situation and of the heart. There's not one person in this passage who nominated David. There's not one person in this passage who voted on David and thought, well, David could be a good king. The entire emphasis on the lead-up and once we get into Bethlehem itself is on the fact that God has made his choice. The likely sons, obviously the, the oldest first and then working your way down the line, the likely sons are all brought forward and they are sequentially rejected with the same phrase, the Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord, the Lord has not chosen that one. The Lord has not chosen any of these. And so everything about this selection as we work our way through it is unexpected. Bethlehem is a little place. It's a little town. It's of very little significance. The one who is chosen is the one who is the youngest. And he's off stage. He's not even in the picture. You can't see him because he's not there. He's not around to be seen at all. Not because, like Saul, he's hiding in the baggage, but because he's out working. He's out doing the work that his father had appointed to him. And frankly, 
given the story of the book of Ruth, it's unlikely because it's amazing that any of this family exists at all. But that one, that one who is off is God's choice and it fits the old pattern. It fits the old pattern that runs throughout the Old Testament of unlikely, improbable choices. I choose the younger instead of the older. I choose to use the older couple to have children rather than the younger couple to have children. I choose the barren woman to bear. And it takes us all the way up to this very book, to a barren woman who couldn't have children, who cries out to the Lord, and that it anticipates, of course, another story. An older couple who couldn't have children, who when they are finally able to have children, give birth to a prophet, and then a woman who can't have children at all because, in fact, she is a virgin, and then a time when they meet up in Bethlehem, and behold, God's choice. On the front of your bulletin from Psalm 78, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. In Psalm 89, I have exalted one chosen from the people. My hand shall be established with him. God chooses David and links himself with David and David's progeny, those who would come from David. Acts 13, he raised up David. And brothers and sisters, this is good news. Our hope is anchored not in our wisdom, in our provision, in our vision, in our decision. Our hope is anchored in the man of God's own choosing. The man of God's own choosing. That's what you're watching here. The man of God's own choosing when all looked barren to human eyes. When the heady hope of a new government, of a new king, a new way to do things lay in ruins. When it looked like the field was barren and absolutely nothing would grow. When rejection seemed to be the word that would govern the day when the barren woman wept and when the prophet wept. God saw, God provided, and God decided. I've got a man. I've got a scion. I've got a new hope. Dost ask who that may be. King David, it is he? Well, yes, then no. You know how the rest of this story goes. David starts off with incredible hope. God linked. David, yes, and no at exactly the same time. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he. All you need to do is just expand the story. Just blow the story up. You're looking at it a thousand years before the birth of Christ. It's a preview. The sequel is better than the original in this case. 
much better than the original, the other son of Bethlehem, the one who will be there, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who is worthy of our faith, of our gifts, of our worship, of our service. He will not disappoint us. Great David's greater son is Jesus the King, born in Bethlehem. God saw our need. God provided the King. God allowed us to see His glory. His Son, His chosen one, our Good Shepherd, and a new hope for the people of God. And so as we look at this story, as we begin to turn, which we'll do just a little bit more next week, and then as I said, put on hold, but as we begin to turn to the life of David, God is preparing us, the people of God, to see the beauty of the life of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray then that you would help us to see you, to remember how you worked throughout history in raising up and choosing your servants, but then to see the chosen one, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We would see him. We would be drawn to him. We would find our peace and our hope and our comfort in him, in whose name we pray. Amen.